Welcome to Author Chat, a bi-weekly podcast featuring interviews, discussion, and conversation with some of the best authors from Morgan James Publishing. Hi, welcome to Author Chat. I'm your host, Jana Lynch, and with me today is Brian Forschner. Brian is a professor, a counselor, CEO, social advocate, speaker, and now the author of Cold Serial. Welcome, Brian. Hey, good to be here. Thanks so much for joining us today. So today we're going to talk about your book that released um, late in 2015, Cold Serial. Um, can you explain a bit about the book? Yeah, it started out as, uh, uh, actually I was teaching in the criminal justice department at the University of Dayton at the time, and uh, right across the street is Woodland Cemetery where Ketterings and the Wright Brothers and all kinds of people were buried, so I was over there. Taking uh, it was a great place to go there and sit around the lake, take a take a lunch break. So I, but I stopped. I knew my family was buried there, so I stopped by the uh, the uh, office and I went through. Of course, in those days, some of the, your listeners here don't don't know what a card catalog is, but uh, but it was a card catalog. And I found a 15 year old girl named Mary Forstner that was not on the official family, you know, or official unofficial family tree so uh, so that basically is where the the whole thing started so when I looked into it uh, I found out that she was my grandfather's uh, sister and I first I grew up with my grandfather my dad my grandfather worked for the same company had never heard of her and actually and after he had died my family the uh, this girl was never mentioned so so then I as I dug deeper I found out that she had been murdered and uh, I, uh, I no sooner found that out, the first newspaper I picked up, I found out that uh, within days of her murder, uh, there was another girl, and there were other girls that were mentioned. And then I um, actually, I, I, one of the first papers I, uh, outside of this region here, uh, Cincinnati-Dayton area, I looked at was New York Times, and it was the New York Times, uh, apparently, who coined these murders, the Jack the Strangler murders, which is where, where I got the name, of, uh, partial name of the book for, from. So, so that's how that uh, happened. And so then I started um, looking at uh, uh, trying to, actually what, what I initially wanted to do is maybe write the life of my, my uh, great aunt, or at least do some detailed genealogical work on it. And uh, when I started finding all these girls, I said, well, I talked to some fellow writers, and they said, well, you know, uh, make a great series of short stories. So um, so I began, I started off with her, her, uh, her life, and then I began working on the other girls, and um, actually it was at where I got uh, the idea to be, that there were some similarities here in these murders was at my great aunt's. Uh, viewing at the at the my great grandmother's home, and when they before they closed the casket lid, she bent over to kiss my uh, great aunt goodbye, as it were, and she noticed something missing, and uh, and there were some police there, and she immediately pointed it out to them, and they had missed it, hmm. and 
And then, um, and that rang some bells. I said, you know, uh, because there were literally hundreds of reporters from all over the country and the world that covered these uh, murders. And a part part of it was because Dayton was really on the map in those days because of uh, NCR, which was arguably the largest manufacturing company in the world in those days. Uh, you know, it's about 7,000 employees there, and the Wright brothers. who So Dayton was clearly on the map. So this uh, it just uh, exacerbated the situation when all of a sudden here's this great name that that was being circulated around the world. I mean, people in Paris saw Dayton as the Paris of the Midwest. And it, all of a sudden these murders were being associated with it. <clears throat> so I... Uh, so with all these viewpoints of hundreds of reporters doing hundreds of interviews, and of course I read all these news, newspapers over a period of about three or four years, I found uh, some patterns start to develop, like um, souvenirs, the type of things that we know today and associate with serial killers, that in those days they uh, they, they had serial killers, but they didn't know they had them, and the uh, detective work was in its infancy, uh, so, uh, you know, we know that things like souvenirs and anniversary dates and and similar MOs and histories of predatory behavior and all the, the all those types of things, um, when I went back through all these articles, um, I kept finding things and things started to fall into place, that there's a, there's clearly a pattern. The MO was the same uh, for you know, rape strangulation was the same for all of the girls, and um, so so that that started to fall together. And then I got a tip um, from a crime reporter in those days who wrote years later. He wrote um, a Sunday article called "From the Crime Reporter's Notebook," and he wrote an article. Oh, I think in the twenties, where he mentioned a a um, an individual in an unrelated murder or an unrelated crime, let's say. So I went back and tracked down this individual in in the uh, what records I could find, and I'll tell you, it just things fell into place, and the oh, the evidence just became overwhelming. So, so that's that's how it. Uh, so what started out as uh, maybe, maybe some genealogical work, and I mean, I had done some professional journal writing and those kinds of things and presenting papers, all kinds of things teachers do, uh, but this was my first, this would, this would end up being my first book, and but things started just, just to fall into place, and the thing started writing itself after I found out, after I saw what started tying all of these things together. So, and I, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to reveal the uh, uh, the results of it, but I've uh, I've run it by coroners, and uh, I had uh, police and detectives and various types of people working with me to help me, you know, just to test my uh, my theories, and uh, they, uh, uh, I think the general consensus is I think we got our man. Hmm. Well, the police back then certainly could have used you because it was apparent, you know, I mean, obviously this was, you know, 100 years ago, 
But it was apparent in the book that they really had no idea what they were doing. And um, it was interesting to see um, just how much, I, I guess by our standards, shoddy police work really went into figuring out um, what, even just what happened to them. And in a couple instances, um, accusing the families. Yeah, you know, and, and in fairness to the police department, um, you know, there was, I mean, during the Industrial Revolution, I mean, there was uh, cities like Dayton, there was a 100% employment, um, people moving into town constantly, uh, the cities were expanding, the police departments were always underfunded. In 1900, in the city of Dayton with about 70,000 people, there was one detective, hmm. 45, 47 police officers. So, and, so they, they weren't being given the resources. And, um, and the other thing is they didn't know what to look for. It's, I mean, part of detective training is knowing what to look for. And uh, the, the whole principle of forensics is to place the criminal at the scene of the crime. So, so they didn't quite know what to look for. On the other hand, um, they knew uh, they knew who did it. And I think I pointed out in my book that even though there were some, there was a, one conviction, they knew they had the wrong that the uh, the politicians had the wrong man. Uh, but they were also under a lot of pressure uh, to make sure that. Um, you know, they, they they did not want to lose NCR because NCR said they were going to leave town in 1906 because one of the girls was an NCR employee, mm-hmm. and the head of NCR put up, well, he raised the equivalent of about $300,000 in today's money mm-hmm. that attracted and rewards attracted detectives from all over the country. And uh, so they didn't want to lose that. And he he felt uh, one of the reasons he wanted to leave town was because he felt that it was the Dayton was the 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 most crime-ridden city in the state of Ohio, if not the country. Hmm. And then the other thing that was happening, certainly in 1909, is the Wright brothers were trying to sell uh, the mili- the uh, militarization of aviation in France, and they were going to be coming back about three. It was about three months or so after the last two murders were uh, had occurred, and and clearly uh, the city did not, um, in all the hoopla that this was going to bring about an exposure for for the city, they did not want uh, the perception that there was a serial killer on the loose. So you started seeing editorials appear that uh, we do not have a, a serial killer; it's just merely growing pains. Um, <laughs> But they, and and a great cartoon, which I'm putting up all of these, I mean, I have hundreds of digital photos of newspapers from southwest Ohio. I'm putting them on my website. And one of them that was in the Cleveland Plain Dealer shows a, really encapsules the whole uh, scene at that time. And it it was a tree, and the tree was named Dayton. And on the tree were the names of these murdered girls. And there was a newspaper boy, and his on, on 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 his shirt it said newspapers from all over the country, and he was throwing mud on the tree. Hmm. And the title underneath it, uh, because they reprinted this in the Dayton paper, uh, but the title that uh, under the cap uh, the caption for 
uh, that, was, uh, that appeared in the Cleveland Plain Dealer said that in Dayton, when a, when a man's daughter doesn't come home, he goes looking for her body. Mm. And the editorial in the Dayton paper was entitled, What Can We Do to Stop This? And it just really summarized the the predicament on the hands of the uh, politicians at the time. So, so what happened is these, at the end, are the murders, the investigations were cut short, and the murders got swept under the rug. So it was a you know a very volatile political climate in those days, and uh, the cities were growing. And of course, one one of the uh, the great the legacies that these girls had, and, and the reason I wrote the main reason I wrote the book was to tell their stories, because you know telling their stories is one way of bringing some justice um, to these these poor ladies. But uh, they had um, uh, you know annexation uh, happened in as a result of their murders. Annexation happened uh, in the areas where they lived after their murders. In other words, the, the, the part of the city or the part of the suburban areas they lived into was annexed because people wanted more um, uh, police protection and lighting. Because these girls were working in, I mean, Dayton had 48 cigar factories, and so many of these girls were working in plants like that and coming home at all hours of the day and night in the dark with getting paid in cash. Um, hmm. Another thing that happened was the uh, uh, to keep uh, Patterson in town, um, keep him happy, and keep NCR in town. They, um, a chamber, the chamber, one of the first chambers of commerce in the country was formed, uh, and that was uh, as a direct result of the pressure from uh, what to do about these murders and and a lot of reforms in the Dayton Police Department in 1900 were a result of the first girl that. That, that that was killed, and some conversations I had with the uh, local Dayton Police Department historian. He saw some there were some links he was missing, and one of them was the murder of this first girl that led a delegation from uh, Dayton, their leadership, to go to Detroit, which was supposedly the best police department in the country then. Huh? And that led to a lot of changes, call boxes, additional. Police uh, training of detectives and, and that that sort of thing. So there were, and the the WCA, the forerunner, the YWCA, uh, spent a fair amount of time in town then talking about uh, um, development of hostels for girls because they were coming into town from <clears throat> the one girl came from north city north of Dayton and she uh, um, you know they would stay in boarding houses. Or flop houses, where there just wasn't any any uh, residential type setup for them. So that that uh, that was another part of their legacy, at least in there in crime prevention. Uh, there was talk, you know, things about uh, uh, the the WCA came to date and was pushing things like keeping a box of pepper in your purse or a box of pepper by your you know the forerunner of pepper spray mm. and effective effective ways to use umbrellas on men. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yelling and uh, physical training for girls. And one that still rings true to, to, to today is um, chiding the newspapers that they should uh, quit reporting all the gory details. Uh, 
Mm. It just fans the flames. So, so they, so they left a great, uh, they they left a great legacy. And actually, a couple of weeks ago, the uh, one of the girls was Jewish, and the uh, kind of caught the attention of the uh, Jewish Community Center, who has an annual book show. So, someone suggested that we go on a book tour of kind of a reenactment of the last days of these girls. And so we put together a group of uh, uh, a, a Scott Stoney, who is a well-known national and local actor, and um, David Greer, who is a nationally known attorney, historian, and banjo player. Mm. And we did a, a, a Ken Burns approach and actually ended up filling up two buses of just almost immediately. And uh, so we took two tours. So what we did is we uh, I was the narrator, uh, David was the historian, and Scott was the active live voice of the time. And he actually dressed in a in a reporter's uh, costume of 1900. And we visited the the sites uh, of, of the, the, where, where the girls were murdered, uh, the homes, the places are still there. The homes are still there. We uh, read the newspaper articles and obituaries and, uh, and of the time and what was going on at the time in the city. So it was a great uh, it was a great event and people enjoyed it and got to know got to know the girls more and so and the the, uh, the other thing that I tried to do in the book and we did on the tour as well is there was so much written and in the uh, the narrative nonfiction style that I use, I was able to take so many snippets of information about written about the girls and that they were cute little girls in school and they were well liked and they did this, that or whatever. You could really weave that together into a narrative so the reader really gets a feel for who the girl was. Hmm. Yeah, that was yeah, there was a lot of um there was a lot of dialogue and and you really got to know the girls in the book. They weren't, it was much more, this is a crime that happened to people rather than yeah. these are the victims. Yeah, that, and, 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 and they're just, you know, they're, uh, we talk about social media today, and there was social media then. You had three newspapers, and most cities had at least Certainly, Cincinnati and Dayton had three newspapers a day. Uh, most people came home for lunch, read it then. You know, twelve, fifteen pages, no car ads. Hmm. It was, it was, it was detail and gossip. And uh, if there were trials, it had the complete transcript. It had autopsies. It had just everything. And on top of that, there was multi-language papers. There were grocery stores. Um, I remember. And, and, and when I was a kid, I would go, when I went to the grocery store, the guy there already knew what my mother wanted. <laughs> I mean, so, so and, and, and beauty shops, barber shops, and local pubs, and very active churches, and ministers, you know, ministers' sermons were put in the paper. So there was a lot of communication, because there was no radio and television, and, and um, most homes didn't have phones then. So there was a lot of communication among uh, among people and of course people crime sites crime and trial was theater 
people would fight to attend a trial. I mean, they would have to have police there to watch the crowds. And on a weekend, like on these crime sites after a girl was killed, you know, 20, 25, 30,000 people would come out over a weekend to comb the site, have their picture taken, maybe see if they could find some some uh, evidence because crime prevention or crime uh, crime scene investigation and preservation was really in its infancy uh and looking in the windows of the home and uh crashing crashing the, the crashing the viewing mm-hmm. uh stealing flowers from the casket I mean, it was just um it was an interesting time i mean not that we don't still have a certain amount of that but uh, but but it was just entertainment. If you could get yourself uh, get your picture in the paper, and you'd see people posing at the crime scene or get quoted, because they would always and the police uh, like they do today. They they would inter- interview neighbors, and of course the neighbors they they would do anything they could to be in the paper. A couple of great quotes that happened when after my uh, great aunt died. So they. Uh, she was. She had what, eight sisters, and so there was like eight sisters, uh, brother, and her, you know, mother and father there. So, so they ask, you know, so go around to the neighbors and ask, what uh, do you ever hear anything unusual or see anything unusual around the Forster household? Well, uh, the one woman says, uh, well, there. Uh, she says there sure is a lot of screaming that goes on over there. <laughs> uh, you know, the implication being who knows what. Well, I mean, what, eight or nine women in one bathroom? There'd be a whole lot of screaming in a lot of households. <laughs> <laughs> and that Mary was, and then, they, but this, this whole thing of death by innuendo, or or that Mary, who was the one that was killed, he said, well, what do you think about her? Well, she says, well, that girl was a handful. So, And, and they'd get quoted in the paper, and, and that would just, uh, you know, that would just... Uh, Make their days. So, or in the uh, in the, another one of the girls, there was a uh, the the mother was sick and the daughters were very protective and the neighbors resented it. So when when her uh, when she died, um, this led to over a year of neighbors ganging up who tried to put the blame on the family that the family killed their daughter. And, Mm-hmm. And even though it was proved that she was raped, uh, and the, there was, of course, the flames were fanned by by all this reward money, there became a battle between conspirators who said the family did it and wanted to re-exhume her body to prove she wasn't raped, and those who said she was raped and somebody else did it that they had sweated the confession out of now. Uh, now these conspirators were detectives, attorneys, and politicians, doctors. Who eventually, attorneys were chastised and disbarred, and all of them were publicly criticized in the community. And the, the family eventually sued them. But this this went on for it was probably one of the worst miscarriages of justice I think I've I've ever seen. It went on for about a year and a half. Yeah, that was the the second victim you talk about yeah. in the book. That was that was a mess. I mean, the mom was sick. There was a sister who was sick. They accused the brother. I mean, it was that was definitely you know a, a mess. <laughs> and it was it was interesting how you know 
that whole thing played out as as you as you just described. Um, well, the sexism of the time too was just un- unbelievable. That crime, you know, rape was seen as a as a a, a, a crime. It was not seen as a, a violent offense. It was just merely men overcome with lust. Matter of fact, that was the one headline for this girl that so and so. Uh, a man overcome by lust kills girl, and, and and even with a young child who would be raped, uh, the headline would always involve whether she was virtuous or not, because they couldn't tell a lot from autopsies in those days, mm-hmm. but they could definitely tell whether a girl was a virgin. Uh, and and uh, in one of the cases there, where one of the girls was not a virgin, I mean they. She was uh, publicly criticized from the pulpit um, before the autopsy was, uh, was done mm-hmm. uh, because she had gone to the city. She was basically a fallen woman, so she was condemned because all they knew at the autopsy and released at the time was that she wasn't a, quote, virtuous girl. Yeah, the, the, what I And to this I'm... day, she, married, she is buried in a – she and her family – uh, are buried in unmarked graves. Wow. At the time, they I think they put a wooden marker on hers, but she was publicly pilloried. Wow. And then, of course, of course women were not... The, the, one of the things that you have to constantly remind yourself of in, in the, that, that I, I found hard to understand in today's society is women weren't citizens. I mean, they didn't have the right to vote until 1919. So, young girl at 17, 18, she needed to find a mate in life, or or else she would be, and, and of course, girls just didn't go to high school, uh, you know, in, only in rare occasions, so she, uh, they would be doomed to a life of poverty if they didn't find a mate. Mm. And, I mean, my grandmother, I think, went through sixth grade and worked in a cigar factory, my wife's mother... Uh, had a fourth grade education and, and and signed her name with an X hmm. uh, t- till her last day. So, so that those are the things that was kind of the times that that all this was uh, uh, these murders were occurring and women had very little rights and uh, I kept struggling with the continuum. It was somewhere between sexism and slavery, and somewhere in between there was where. Uh, women stood so yeah it was that was apparent in the investigation work in the media coverage um you know the accusations the way the whole case all the cases were were treated you could definitely see a lot of the attitudes that were pervasive the racism the anti-semitism the the sexism there was even class bias like it was well, you know, the, and the, the whole and the I've, you know there's if there's some lessons to learn I, I, you know we the whole issue of sexual assault I mean we just we really have a ways to go mm-hmm. uh, on on issues like that and obviously the the the, uh, uh, the racism anti-Semitism in the police departments um, there was a, a, a Dayton uh, an African American newspaper in those days that said something was very prophetic because they resented the fact that any time a uh, certainly a white woman in the community was raped, they automatically assumed that a black man did it, and they would rouse the black neighborhoods. And there was an article in the uh, 
this African-American newspaper, the Dayton Observer, that said, why is it that when a white man commits a crime, it's charged against uh, this individual? When a black man commits a crime, it's charged against the whole race. And I think those are some things that we're, we're still wrestling with. Mm, definitely, most definitely, most definitely. So um, you had talked about the, the bus tours earlier and, and the tourist attraction element of the crime scenes, um, you know, back in those days. And that reminded me of another case I had heard about um, through another podcast they actually developed a play based on this murder that they and a book was written and and they developed a play out of um out of this murder do you have any plans to to dive any further into into the cases you know this is very weird but i was at my one of my in-laws is a lyricist and a playwright and he actually wrote a review for, for my book, and we have been talking about this. And yesterday we both looked ourselves in the eye and said, yes, we're going to do this. And he wants to work with me on developing a a play, uh, certainly around the one case here, the one with the NCR, uh, mm-hmm. the NCR employee that went on forever. It's just it has uh, eminently writable and he's written several plays he just thinks we we need to uh we need to well he he you know he's saying well you, you got to find out what's the story you want to i'm i'm not a playwright so he says you have to tell you know what do you, what's the message you want to convey well we need to wrestle with that and uh and I, th- I think we have a handle on it in terms of just the the justice and uh uh women's uh, and you know and even tying it into today's um uh, uh, issues with women's uh, rights, and so we are. I, so it's just strange that you should ask that we we just we literally talked about that yesterday because I was talking to his um, his wife's um, book club, huh, who uh, had read the book. So that that's very strange timing. <laughs> um, yeah. But, so well, I wish you the best of luck in writing that play, and you know when you get it written, and you know let us know if you know you want to come back on and talk about it. In the meantime, though, if anyone wants to read your book or connect with you or sign up for one of the bus tours, how can they do that? Well, you can get a hold of me uh, through my website, coldserial.com. Uh, you can also see me at Brian Forstner on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, tweet, uh, uh, at Brian underscore Forstner. Brian E. Forstner at gmail.com. So you can get a hold of me a wide variety of ways, probably the simplest. And you can also get the book and autograph books on my website at coldserial.com. Great. And, and just so um, no one spells it wrong, your last name is F-O-R-S-C-H-N-E-R, correct? Correct. So Brian Forstner. Um, Brian E. Forstner at gmail.com. So. And, right, okay. And then Brian underscore Forstner for Twitter and through the website, Cold Cereal. That's S-E-R-I-A-L, not the breakfast cereal. Um, right, although I must say we, uh, I, I don't know if it was my wife or my granddaughter's idea that we give cold, we hand out cold cereal treats at, uh, at presentations. I give little Rice Krispie treats and with my business card on them, so. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. That's very cute. Um, 
Okay, well, is there anything else um, you'd like to impart or share with us? Uh, no, I think uh, I'm eager to, uh, always happy to tell a story. That's why I, I'm, uh, I wrote the book, happy to talk to anybody that wants to listen, and eager to hear feedback on, uh, on the book, you know, among other things. Uh, uh, do you think I presented the case? Do you think, do you think we got the guy? Um, so uh, do stay, uh, you know, read, or get the book and stay in touch. And I, I know I will because I think it, it was a fascinating book, and I love seeing all the old pictures on the website. I think that's it adds just a an element you don't always get with these older cases. So that's a nice touch that as a reader and a criminal justice little bit of nerd, um, I appreciate. So well, yeah, and on the site, you also there's other stuff on the site too. You'll see you know, like women's shoes for twenty nine cents. Mm. You know, a newspaper was a penny. I mean, so you, you give it a little if you if you enjoy that sort of uh, thing. Of course, you may get depressed over the cost of living, but <laughs> um, but it, it yeah, it's just a different time. And but in a very typical typical of the situation in those days, and some of the roots of issues we're still wrestling with were uh, were very uh, apparent. Yeah, it, it's 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 fascinating stuff. Um, all right, so I guess we'll we'll say goodbye now, but we'll stay in touch. Great, I really appreciate the opportunity and good talking to you.